Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This podcast has been on a bit of a break over the last few months after recording 50 episodes in pretty short succession, but I'm delighted to say that we are back. And who better to be back with than Professor Felicity Gary QC, an absolute hero of international criminal law and human rights and this conversation is both fascinating wide-ranging and i really enjoyed it and i hope you do too the better human podcast is supported by goldsmiths law and their pioneering llb undergraduate program taught in london if you're interested in studying law take your first step towards becoming a solicitor or a barrister with our qualifying law degree to learn more and apply visit gold.act.uk forward slash law Hi, Felicity. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, I can't believe that you've not been on the podcast already. And for that, I apologise. Um, you are one of one of, one of of the greats in, in uh, my human rights practitioners a... <laughs> in the world today. So thank you so much for coming on. That's very kind of you. It's lovely to be here and lovely to see and speak to you. So we've got loads to talk about because you do loads of interesting stuff. Um, we're not going to be, usually I'll, I'll have a sort of topic for a podcast, but I think it, it's, you are the topic today, or at least the work that you do. <laughs> so busy let's me. Do it like that. Yeah, busy you, exactly. Um, what, do you, what do you think human rights are for you? Oh, look, for me, it's, um, I suppose it sounds really trite, but it's about justice and fairness. And there are so many injustices in the world. If there's a mechanism that can help us sort them out and make sure the world is a better place, I suppose that's what it means at its core, that we all try and treat each other with dignity and respect and understand each other um, and act in the common good and all those things we trot out. But it genuinely means something to me, you know, either as a barrister representing an individual who... uh, needs help to be understood and have fair proceedings, but also as um, someone who routinely advises on systemic change, business and human rights or criminal responsibility and human rights and how systems ought to be reformed um, and how remedies might need to be more available. Then when you're talking about whole groups of people or um, whole events that affect large groups of people that the same is true really you want them to have access to justice and a voice and and have a, a fair hearing and a fair result so I haven't really got a brand new answer to that question you know somebody sat down and wrote some principles that all sound lovely after the second world war and those of us who work in this area try and try and work out how they work and how they should work I think I think that's the best answer I can give you. I don't I don't think that sounds trite at all. I mean, I often think about um, David Maxwell Fife, chair of the drafting committee, who was the uh, British prosecutor at Nuremberg, who said that who, who'd boiled it down to tolerance, decency and kindliness um, was what human rights were about. And that for me, you know, it does it does sound trite. But if you I often use that in court, you know, that is if you're talking about first principles, why not tolerance? decency and kindliness and I guess um, as Jonathan Cooper um, who I, I miss very much died recently would say dignity human dignity is you know the other concept 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And courtesy, just being nice to people um, <laughs> allows you to sort of understand what the problems are and then give those problems themselves some dignity so that you can resolve them in a way that ought to be fruitful for everyone. So, look, yeah, there, there are some old fashioned words we can use like courtesy and decency that come in a very loaded way sometimes. But um, I think dignity and respect is where, what I would grasp for because they're, they're slightly less loaded and sometimes less patriarchal. There's um, some lovely old cases about communication with Aboriginal people, when in, which I've read when I was working in Darwin in the Northern Territory. And, and you do wonder whether courtesy meant the same thing, but uh, mostly I think dignity and respect catches it. And also the need for finding how that can give us a remedy. Um, it, it's all very well saying, well, we'll give you as an individual dignity and respect, but actually you need to give the issues dignity and respect by giving them a, a way of resolving that doesn't harm people. You know, I think it's just um, trying to work through that sense of equity and equality of arms. Now, you've spoken about Darwin um, in Australia. Um, I, I have already asked you before we started recording where, where, you, where on earth you are, because I don't <laughs> never quite know whether you're in Australia or Hong Kong or London or up, I think the last time we spoke, you were up somewhere up north in England um, on a murder trial. I mean, wh when you started your career, did you, is this what you imagined you'd be doing at this stage, you know, this sort of amazing international human rights and crime practice? Um, do you know, the weird answer to that is yes, it is what I imagined I would do. And, um, you know, I don't mind saying so now. I loved conflict of laws when I was at university. I loved the idea of working out what's the proper law between countries. And I loved what I could try and understand about international law. And I sort of lost it for a while. Um, and I came back to it uh, at about 10 years ago, I suppose, international law. So... Yes, I think the answer is I'm tr I'm living my best life in many ways. And I have very good opportunities. This week I've been working on issues relating to Afghanistan and women and peace and security, business and human rights in Myanmar and upcoming murder trials in England. So it's a very eclectic mix. But along the way, of course, I had to learn the basics of advocacy and how the criminal justice system works and what it means to have corporate responsibility for human rights which is often about criminal law anyway um, at corruption modern slavery those sorts of things so I've spent I suppose the first 15 years of my career working out that I was a criminal barrister and then the second part of my career working out that that actually doesn't mean that you just do um, domestic trials. There's an international criminal law world out there and there's an overlap between criminal law and corporate practice that, that I try and engage in. So, yeah, I think this is what I want to do and I grasp the opportunities to do it when I can. I think it's been harder for me, much harder for me to do what I do uh, for a woman to do the sorts of cases that I do is hard. And I think that's been the guide in my life. Every single time there's been a suggestion that I can't do something, I think, well, I will. And I'm not sure I've 
got here by remembering that this is what I wanted to do. Only now I'm here and you ask me that question that I, I suppose feel brave enough to say, yes, actually, I'm doing what I would have like to have done but yeah look it's it's like many members of the bar if an opportunity comes along you say yes even though you probably shouldn't because you've got a million other things that you've said yes to I still try and say yes if it's interesting well it sounds like you don't just say yes if it's interesting you also it, it when people tell you or or suggest that you you might not be the right person for that or you might not be able to do that it sounds like it's a motivator for you yeah look I, I tell there's a few stories that I can tell of cases where people say well you're never going to get that home or you know you'll never get that brief or uh it's very hard for a woman to do that sort of job I was talking to an international criminal judge not very long ago who said of course you know it's very difficult for women to be involved in international law and international investigations you know there's a safety issue and I just thought do you know what there's a safety issue whether whatever gender you are of course there is you know but that doesn't stop you doing what you should be doing so that just makes me want to kick the door in and get through the door and get in doesn't make it easy but it I I feel a responsibility now you know if I can get on the list at the International Criminal Court that's going to inspire a generation behind me you know there's only I think 17 percent one seven of the list of counsel at the International Criminal Court who are women. So the generation after me, that percentage ought to be an awful lot higher. So I do feel a sense of responsibility as well. Firstly, it's me and I'm a bit bloody minded and I think, don't tell me I can't do it, I'll do it. And secondly, I do feel that responsibility that people younger than me ought to have the more opportunity to do a wider range of things that I've had to fight quite hard to do. I mean, speaking of cases where... Um, where there were a lot of men, and I'm guessing that that <laughs> might cover a lot of your your bigger cases. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Jogi because that's where we first met, um, and you know it was a it was a real privilege to be involved in that. Um, you know, for me, as still really my my only criminal case <laughs> I've ever done, which which um, which doesn't go down well when I tell, especially my, now I've got many criminal um, colleagues uh, at Doughty Street. I, I try and sort of chuck that in just in case, just to wind them up. But it's, um, it is the case that, you know, when, when I meet law students, you know, who, who have been through law school in the last few years, they, you know, that is, it, it's a totemic case um, for the, the, the law that changed the law of joint enterprise after three decades of, of the courts getting it wrong. Um, can we just talk about how, you know, how did that come about? Because you you really were the driver, you know, in, in a way which it's, it's difficult to describe how much you were the driver of that whole uh, that whole issue and that whole appeal. But but you were. And um, how did that all happen? And how did what were the sort of challenges that came up to get it in front of the Supreme Court and when? Yeah, look, it's a very, very long story. I'm going to just um, correct you. The first time we met was on a, a corporate corruption panel in the city and we were speaking about um corporate law uh so my one of my expertises <laughs> yeah my, you know so we expertise. didn't meet there you are we didn't necessarily meet in crime but um look the story of jogi and including how you came to be in it was it started off at almost mundane. It was a stabbing in a in Leicester, a town in the middle of England, that sadly is a very common occurrence. And I was the junior. 
And obviously you have to deal with the evidence in court. And I was absolutely confident that the evidence didn't seem to demonstrate that he was necessarily assisting or encouraging what went on inside the house. And it was a case where the we argued at the close of the prosecution case that there was no case to answer. And the judge left it to the jury on the basis that, well, he went back for something. And if he foresaw that his co-accused might use a knife, then he was guilty of the one of the most serious crimes there is, murder, which and facing a life sentence. So you foresee the possibility that somebody might do something and you're going back for something. It was had no clarity whatsoever. And in fact, um, when we eventually got to the Supreme Court, we really had two grounds of appeal, which are not in the judgment. One was, well, look, you know, if we got rid of felony murder in 1957, which was foreseeable consequences, sort of an objective test, we've got this foresight of possibilities. Maybe we want to think about probabilities instead of possibilities, you know, make juries stop and think about the people on the periphery. And in fact, that is now the law of complicity or one way in which you can be complicit in Victoria, in Australia. So the same conversation was happening overseas. I wasn't aware of it at the time. So other people were thinking, well, ought this to be probabilities rather than possibilities to sit with more neatly with the burden and standard of proof in a criminal trial? And then the second ground of appeal was joint enterprise over criminalises secondary parties. Now, that's, it's an enormously long story, which I would recommend people read chapter 11 of Beatrice Krebs's edited collection called Accessorial Liability Out of, After Jogi, because I've written the story down in there. But essentially, um, when we lost in the Court of Appeal and the judge said, well, there's nothing in this, it was the second time I had to look Mr. Jogi's mum in the eye and tell her that we'd failed. We failed at trial and we failed in the Court of Appeal. And you imagine having to say to somebody's mum when she says, well, is that it? And you have to say yes. And that's her son in prison, potentially for the rest of his life and certainly on a life sentence with life license. And for me, really, it was always about the mums. I wasn't part of the Jengba campaign. I hadn't been involved in any of the... um, law commission reports as to how the law on complicity was failing. Uh, I'd seen it. I just saw it in the case that I was in. I thought it was unjust. I started to read the law. I talked to judges and professors who had, in fact, spoken out or been the dissenting judges in cases. And and, uh, I particularly read cases that Stephen Coward had been in. And he, he sadly died, but he was a fantastic jurist I suppose and when you read some of the cases that he was in in the 90s you can see that he was arguing what I eventually got the chance to argue he was saying hang on this can't be right this way in which the law is going can't be right surely we've got to get back to questions of intention rather than foresight of possibilities so I I read it and I spoke to people and I drafted some grounds of appeal And in my mind, I thought, well, look, if I can't get anywhere with the English courts, because everybody was saying, well, you've got no chance. The courts have been rejecting all these cases. You've got no chance. 
I thought we probably needed to go somewhere else. There seemed to me to be a lot of black people who'd been affected by this change in the law and were being locked up in, in disproportionate numbers. It seemed to affect people with disabilities. There are examples of registered blind people who've been convicted in the period of time that the law went wrong, as the Supreme Court said. um, I've got an autistic client, too, actually, who've been convicted where juries didn't even know they were autistic, which must have something to do with your knowledge of what other people are going to do and your complicity in what other people are going to do. So I rang you because I cobbled something together. I think I cut and pasted from a blog that you'd written and I'd cobbled something together on whether or not the law was clear and certain. And because it came from your blog, I thought, well, I'll ring the guy that wrote the blog. I've met him before. We seem to think along the same lines about responsibility and human rights. So I rang you up and said, can you have a look at it and tidy it up for me? And if we get leave, I'll give you the junior brief, which I did. Um, And fortunately, Catchaline came along with us too to be the second junior. So she had an enormous amount of criminal law experience and now sits as a criminal circuit judge, of course. So that, I think, is what gave you your 15 minutes of fame that the law students ask you about, which was your opportunity to explain Bentham's dog law to this, the UK Supreme Court. And I'm sorry it wasn't longer than 15 minutes because you'd done some beautiful work in the pleadings. Um, and I was very pleased to have you there. But essentially, I was aiming for um, a different venue. If we were not going to succeed in the, in the Supreme Court, I needed to be able to think about where else could we go because by that time I discovered the size of the campaign and the size of the problem and all the people over 30 years who've been wrongly incarcerated on the wrong law on possibilities, not probabilities or even any intention to join in with what someone else was doing. It struck me we needed to think bigger, but fortunately the UK Supreme Court saw sense and made a correction they haven't quite finished the job. There's still some more to do and still a number of injustices. But I think that's a short version of why I decided to drive it as hard as and fast as I could to, um, to the highest point that I could and um, had a cracking result in the UK Supreme Court. And, and since then, um, and we've had, I think, is it five years now um, since the judgment? Um what do you think the impact of it has has been? Because it seems to me that the it's it's been a mixed bag. Yeah, look, that, that, I've written an awful lot about this and um, spoken an awful lot about it. And again, it's a very very long story, and you could have a ten hour podcast. But let's see how we go. Part one, big problem, is that the Supreme Court, for reasons that they have never explained, decided to put up a barrier on the cases that they weren't hearing. So they said, "Okay, Mr. Jogi can have his conviction quashed. We're going to expunge parasitic accessorial liability and make sure we go back to the correct law of intention. We recognise that Parliament got rid of felony murder, so the circumstances in which people should be convicted of being an accessory are quite limited. It's only those who intend to assist or encourage. Um, But then we're going to say, well, anybody who was 
affected by our mistake, our error. And of course, I don't think it was a mistake. It was deliberate in a case called Pal and English. They said, well, it, we know it's illogical, but we'll give it a try. Um, and of course, risked people's liberties on giving something a try that was contrary to Parliament's intention. Um, I will never understand why they did it. Why did they set up a barrier? Why not say, now we've got to look at all the people affected by what we did? Uh, whether it was fear of the floodgates argument or headlines saying murderers on the streets, I'll never know. But that was set up in the UK Supreme Court. The substantial injustice test would apply. The Lord Chief Justice sat in the Supreme Court on Jogi and then tootled off back down to the Court of Appeal. And judges sat in the Court of Appeal on the first appeals post-Jogi and said, well, this means you've got to prove that you would not have been convicted, which is just a ridiculous test that is almost impossible to fulfil. So, unfortunately, it looks like a systemic decision to leave people who were convicted on the wrong law in prison without properly considering whether they ought to have a retrial or an alternative verdict of manslaughter or violent disorder or nothing. And I think there are some real problems. There are some people, even on the correct law, that um, when you do read some cases that uh, they engaged in such significant conduct that they're not really a parasitic accessorial liability case who are sitting in prison. But so far, my experience is that's the minority. And there are a number of people in, in prison or who have been released, who are on parole, who frankly wrongly convicted of murder. So that's problem number one, that there's, I think, about 900 people still in prison who just ought to have their cases reconsidered. Just, just, just before, before you move, move on, on to problem, problem number two, two. do you have any idea? idea? I mean, because, because obviously, obviously we've, we've spoken about this a lot, lot and you've spoken, spoken about it to the, the wider world, world a lot more than, than I have. have. If we're going to really boil it down and you were, you had to choose, what, what do you think the reason was for that? Because the court wasn't asked to do that. It wasn't argued in court. It wasn't, as far as I was aware, there was no um, request from the prosecution or the, the, the respondents in the case to for the court to opine about, you know, not just about what the law should be or what the law is, but also how cases would be dealt with where the law had gone wrong. It was kind of very much, uh, it's almost like when the courts put out a, uh, a, a practice direction, you know, it was, it was almost like a practice direction as in we are going to now tell the lower courts how to deal with cases that, you know, to correct or not the error that we have made over the years. But why do you think they did it? Was it fear of the press? Was it, was it a racial thing? Was it, I mean, what, what is it? Because it was, it must have been something. Well, look, I've always said it was a really brave court for a court to sit there on video in front of the whole world and say, we got the law wrong for 30 years. That's, it's so brave that I've, I've got to give them the credit for that. Yeah, it yeah. would have been so easy to do what the Australian High Court has done and say, oh, well, you know, it hasn't been argued properly before us and we, ca we can't see enough research not to, to get rid of it ourselves. You know, that there was oh, yeah. a really poor decision in a case called Miller, Presley and Smith that um, I was in the background of. I asked to be consolidated and I, that was refused. 
Then they said, oh, well, it wasn't argued properly in Miller, Presley and Smith, so we're not going to decide it at the moment. We'll leave it where it is. And then they refused me special leave, which also yeah. looked like a, a, a setup to say, well, we're going to do what we like. And of course, there's now a divergence in the common law between England and Australia and Hong Kong, which, of course, is not the intention across the Commonwealth. There shouldn't be such a divergence in the common law. So I have to say, I think there is some politics to it. I think there is the idea that, and this was expressed in Powell and English, that we have to do something about these people who are these people. In the Australian High Court, the new Chief Justice has not long ago given a speech about the divergence in common law and has said that parasitic accessorial liability is useful to deal with gangs when you can't quite say who did what, which is actually a real misunderstanding of how cases involving intention work, which I found quite a surprise. So I think there is some politics in it, that, that there is a feeling that the courts should be, the common law should be finding ways to deal with gangs. But of course, most people are not in gangs, they're in groups or they're groups of friends, they're often young people. And there's a whole heap of tropes around gang that are totally inappropriate, particularly in relation to young people who don't hang about on their own very often. So I do think there's some politics in it, sadly, that they feel they've got to be seen to be doing something about gangs. And that's a total misinterpretation of what most cases are about. There are some some people who plan to go out and do terrible things, but there are also people on the periphery who who do very little and are facing life sentences for little or no conduct. And where the court has not expressed what the connectivity has to be to that conduct. So the second problem that I was going to go on to is other areas of law that are are problematic, and I will do that in a moment. But to answer your question, the straight answer is I have no idea why they would do that. Once you're saying you've got something wrong, the next step is to say sorry. And the way to say sorry is to say, right, we've got to pick these cases up and have a proper look at what we did wrong and not try and confess and avoid. So I I think it's truly unfortunate that the judgment is written in such a dismissive way. Um, It's not terribly clear how it ought to be applied. And then it was left to the Court of Appeal to apply it in quite a draconian way. And that really, really undermines the brave thing that the, the court did. Uh, I'm just very, very sorry that we lost Lord Toulson, who I think would have gone on tour. I have a sneaking suspicion this was his retirement gift. He would have gone on tour and explained it to us all and things would have been somehow better. But maybe that's because I live with rose-coloured spectacles and live in hope that eventually everything's going to be better. Um, But I don't think it is for judges to go on tour and explain. They should have done it in the decision and... And it's just an enormous disappointment that we fixed it, but they didn't explain it very well. And they made decisions about cases that weren't even there yet. And what was the second problem? Oh, the second problem is all the problems that are still outstanding. So um, in cases where there is a plan to do something and then there's a surprise, there's an issue around whether that's what's called an overwhelming supervening act. So... Five years on, I was doing a murder trial in um, Preston 
And it's not going to happen very often that you've got a situation that can't be contemplated by the individual who's accused. So overwhelming supervening acts are really those cases that are too remote or where someone doesn't have any criminal responsibility. And they allow judges to decide cases that shouldn't go to a jury. But they also give the jury the opportunity to say, well, this person is insufficiently connected to the the crime and there's a real issue about whether that's a question of causation and I won't make it too problematic for, or complicated for a podcast but I couldn't believe that five years on I was in the case that I was told was the first case where the question of an overwhelming supervening act was left to a jury what on earth had been going on in those five years surely there was another case where that should have happened before me um and in between that, I'd done a case called Lewis that sort of sorted out the law on joint principalship. So that was principles and accessories and now overwhelming supervening acts. And when it comes down to it, I sadly think that people didn't read what I read. People start with Jogi and Lord Leveson said it in a case called Taz. You know, it's tempting to start with Jogi, but actually you've got to look at all the law before that. And I read 500 years of law and you have to look at how the law actually works and I think people just didn't quite get the hang of it so I wrote an article about overwhelming supervening acts for council magazine and I think that's been helpful for other council but I think because Jogi itself wasn't explained terribly well um, some of those principles have taken a while to embed and now I think there are more cases where overwhelming supervening acts has been considered, um, but not necessarily applied. Um, the other part of the problems post-Jogi and that second problem that there are still issues of law is that the court never really explained what someone's connection to a crime has to be. So what type of activity amounts to the sort of assistance or encouragement that um, authorises or... Um, has some connection with the outcome. So is it a procurement case where the, if you procure someone to do something, there has to be some causation? Or if you counsel somebody to do something, it has to be within the scope of what you're counseled or what sort of connection or what does nexus mean or connection mean for somebody to have in fact been an accessory to that crime? And at the moment, the courts are saying, well, it's not causation and the assistance or encouragement doesn't have to have a causative effect. So we've got a decision in Jogi about accessories, doesn't help on principles, doesn't help on uh, planning necessarily, although that might involve an issue of conditional consent, but also doesn't really explain what complicity is. To be complicit, you've really got to have some connection with what the other person is doing. So there's still quite a lot of work to do um, alongside all the evidential problems. Those, It seems to me from Jogi, there are two problems. One is the terrible approach to those people who were affected by the error of law. And two is the terrible failure to explain uh, how the law will function post-Jogi. And that's taken a long time to bed in. I think there's a new compendium now, August 
2021 there's a brand new crown court compendium i haven't quite worked through it all but i think it's a lot better than the old one so there's been a real effort to try and give crown court judges guidance on how the law works post yogi but i did another trial where i had to explain that felony murder was abolished in 1957 because None of the people in the courtroom knew what I was talking about. You know, you have to sort of give a law lecture every time you go. I put my professor's hat and go and give a law lecture and it gets up people's noses a bit, but you tend to get better judicial directions. And some judges are really engaged with that now. They want to make sure that their trials are fair. So there is progress, but it is still really problematic. We could talk about joint enterprise for another 10 hours. And I'm sure you you could probably go on for another 50 hours but um, I, you've done so many other interesting things recently, um, as well as generally. Um, I, I wanted to talk about another Supreme Court case, um, another Supreme Court case where the court did something interesting and maybe left open some doors, and that's the Shamima Begum case. Now, c- you, you intervened in the Shamima Begum case um, on behalf of a client with a, with a very interesting argument which also went back a few hundred years do you want to just explain what that was about well in fact first of all should we just talk about who Shamima Begum is and and what she was um, what she what's happening to her at the moment yeah look um so I think most people know the story of three 15 year old girls who leave England and apparently go and join ISIS and the query is whether they were groomed or exploited or voluntary without a doubt they were children they were only 15 and she was one of them she ended up um married at some point to an ISIS fighter she's had his children he's dead the children are dead and she's discovered by a journalist in a camp in Syria and says she wants to come home to her mum and dad and it's an appalling set of circumstances but it gives rise to some really interesting areas of law And I was instructed to give um, some advice in relation to women in Syrian camps who were Australian citizens. So I had the chance to look some of the law up. And as ever, I love legal history and started working my way back through hundreds of years and discovered this concept of allegiance. So there were several arguments in Shamima Begum's case. First of all, the arguments that were put forward by the parties. So she was um, arguing as a matter of policy, if you like, that her fair trial rights trump national security. She's got to be able to come back and challenge the orders to strip her of her citizenship um, in England and Wales and take part in those proceedings. And the state response to that was, no, it's an issue of national security. The public are not going to know what those issues are, what the detail is. That's dealt with in private. I suspect, and I don't know, I wasn't privy to any of the information, but you've got two issues, haven't you? Is she herself a danger to all of us that she's going to come and do something? Or would her presence in the country cause others to do something? Would she become some sort of icon? I don't know. But the state arguments were, oh, she can't possibly come back because she it would be an issue of national security. However, I, I took the view that there was actually a more fundamental argument, which in many ways is a constitutional argument. When you think of a nation state, a nation state is defined to include its people. 
and a nation state has a responsibility to its people, has a duty to protect its people, a responsibility. And that really is what the rule of law is all about, that the rule of law has to ensure that um, people are um, both subject to that rule of law and protected by that rule of law so that she has an entitlement to return to her nation state to have the protection of the rule of law, which might also include being prosecuted for committing criminal offences, but more importantly, might also come with protections for the vulnerable, for example, children who've been groomed. So um, that's really ancient history. If I read 500 years of law in Jogi, I think we had a thousand or eight, nine hundred bit of Magna Carta thrown in, the only time it's not the weapon of the litigants in person. It was real, very, very real. And if you think of barons and serfs, some of our authorities went back as far as barons and serfs, that the serfs belonged to the baron and the baron had a responsibility for a serf. And if the serf was in trouble, the baron would have to go and fetch the serf and, and, and protect them. And it's really the same principle. Some of our authorities were in Latin. We had to translate the Latin. But the best story to help understand it is um, a case called Joyce, post the Second World War. People might remember Lord Hawhaw, the humbug of Hamburg, who was a broadcaster um, who was said to be British, uh, who broadcast from Berlin Nazi propaganda and, in fact, became very popular in Britain and was listened to on the radio, no matter what they did to try and stop him. He was very popular, people listened to him and he spoke in this sort of faux posh accent and promulgated Nazi propaganda. After the Second World War, he was found, he was brought back to Britain from Berlin, put on trial for treason. And his defense was, well, I'm not British, so I can't commit treason. And he wasn't was uh, Irish or American, and he happened to have a passport that was probably false. And in the end, he was prosecuted for, for treason that was covered by the period of that passport. And the question was, was that enough, the fact that he'd got this passport, whether or not it was false, to say that he had sufficient allegiance to the state for him to be a member of that a, of the population, in which case he would have the protection of the rule of law, which might also include prosecuting him. So it's about the responsibility of the state to those who have allegiance to the state. And it's exactly the same. Of course, <laughs> it was decided that he did have allegiance, whether or not this passport uh, was real and he was hanged. Now, if you think about it, that's a very flimsy basis upon which to say someone has allegiance to a nation state. A lot less than Shamima Begum. She's got parents. She went to school here. She um, is British in every sense of the word, other than she got on a plane and went and married badly and may have done some terrible things, depending on what the evidence is in the end. Um, so she had factors that were carried much greater weight than possession of a passport for a period of time, whether or not it was real. So if Joyce had allegiance, why not Shamima Begum? And that seems to me to be an area of law that is fundamentally constitutional. 
which people does a nation state have responsibility for? The first thing you've got to decide is, does that person still retain allegiance? Now, she may have lost her allegiance. No decision's been made about that as to whether she did or didn't give it up. I think you'd be very, very slow to say that a child has given up their allegiance when they leave at 15. So, in fact, the courts have failed to make a fundamental decision about her allegiance. And if she retains allegiance, then she retains the protection of the rule of law. And it's not a policy decision to let her re-enter. She's got a right to re-enter, constitutional right to come back and have the protection of the rule of law, even if that means prosecuting her. So I thought there was a fundamental failure in the constitutional framework that ought to be before the the highest court in the land. Justice brilliantly instructed me and my Australian junior, both of us having looked up the law for our Australian clients, to intervene in the the appeals for Shamima Begum. And we were allowed to intervene in writing, but not orally. We were asked to attend but not visually. So we had to sort of sit and watch everybody else on the video, which was very frustrating indeed. But we did some supplementary submissions, having listened to all the arguments. And if you ever get a chance to read them, there's some lovely horse analogies. Um, The parties were talking about cart before the horse, whether bringing her back was the cart before the horse. And we put in our submissions there were some lovely moments in our submissions you know if you approach it in that way then the horse is really Trojan and maybe the best analysis is Richard III you know a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse and that is really the point that no one had allegiance to the sovereign in Richard III so he didn't get his horse and Shakespeare got the point And I think their lordships got the point. If you watch the video, every single question they asked was based on we had submitted every single one. It was really interesting. And I was fascinated that they really got the point and they were saying things like, well, what is the duty about going to fetch her? Which I think has to do with habeas corpus. I think she's uh, arguably detained by her own state when the Kurdish authorities said, well, you can have her. And the state says, well, we're not coming to get her. I think there's an argument she's detained by her own state. They asked all sorts of questions that were directed to what we had put in writing. In the end, in the judgment, they said, we've considered it and it's really interesting. But what they did was decide the case on what had been argued by the parties. So they decided that national security trumped her procedural rights and procedural fairness but left it wide open, in my opinion, for the constitutional questions of what constitutes a nation state and who has allegiance and what are the responsibilities, what are the rights and responsibilities, still wide open to be decided. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month that's just over two pounds via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So look, I loved it. It's another case where you can read hundreds of years of law and come up with what I think is the right answer. 
So I think twice I've been in the UK Supreme Court and twice I've come up with the right answer, but then I would, wouldn't I? Um, but yeah, look, it was fascinating and very, very important for the rights of women stuck in appalling camps, whatever they may or may not have done. Yeah, well, I mean, the this idea of allegiance, I mean, it's historically fascinating i guess today it's coming into coming to the fore because of deprivations of citizenship so this this idea of citizenship and and it's something which i'm I'm guessing this came up when you're doing the case but this this hannah arendt's idea that you can't this right the right to have rights so you can't this for the stateless human rights are a are a concept but they, they can't be a reality because if you've got no state then nobody's there to enforce your rights nobody's there to, to get your rights really no such thing it's just a process for stateless people we've all just got to have a process what you've got to do is say well where do they belong it's all about belonging there's some wonderful cases in australia that really get it they use the language of belonging and there's a decision called love and the commonwealth um where they decided that uh that's a great name for a name for a case. Wonderful, isn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> um, it was actually a case called Love and Toms and the Commonwealth. And there's a lovely joke about it being called Toms, actually, because everybody forgets poor Toms. But it, it's Love and the Commonwealth. And it, it, they, they decided that an Aboriginal person belongs. You can't strip an Aboriginal person of citizenship because they belonged long before the process of citizenship. So citizenship is just a process. Whether you belong to a state and who you have allegiance with are factors that can be identified and decided. So nobody needs to be stateless. You just have to have a process. You all sit down and decide where does someone belong. They might end up somewhere they don't want to belong, but they belong somewhere. And that is just political will. And it seems to me it's actually relatively simple to set up tribunals that decide where people belong on evidence with the sort of factors that are already available, certainly in the common law. And I'd bet money they're available in most jurisdictions because, you know, we... We saw we had the idea of the nation state in the 1600s. You know, if you know your history, we, we carved up Europe into nation states um, in, the, in the 1600s. So, look, it, it isn't rocket science to sort out statelessness. It's actually a process of deciding where people belong. And that is a lawyer's task. It's, it's actually very simple. But people don't want to engage in the simplicity and there's a huge amount of politics to it. But I think the fact that we put people, millions of people in camps all across the world, now humanitarian law now is about calculating how many tents you can fit in a field, I find absolutely diabolical. And that's why I felt strong enough to intervene um, in, in the Begum case to say, look, come on, there is a way of doing this better. And that's what the rule of law is all about. And if your law is dysfunctional, then your constitutions need to be functional. Uh, and it, it, it seems to me that is, it's a bit of a no brainer, you know, a deciding if we want to be interested in a nation state, and I rather love a globalized world. I love the idea that we could all just go everywhere, trade everywhere, move everywhere. Let's not have any borders. I rather love that conceptually. 
But if you've got to have borders and you've got to have nation states, then you have to work out who belongs where and you don't arbitrarily just say, well, we don't want you anymore. There's something higher than that that says, well, even if you don't want people, you've actually got to have these. Even if they're horrible, they're yours. And it's a very small step, isn't it, from terrorism to other sorts of offending where you start to say, well, actually, we'll take your passport away. We'll take your citizenship away because we don't like you. And that's why I think the fundamentals of constitutional arrangements, written or unwritten, involve decisions about where people belong so that you can decide which state is responsible for those people. And that includes prosecuting them, protecting them and so forth. So I hope that's a simple way of explaining something that has become extraordinarily complicated, but was pretty simple, quite badly done in Joyce. And frankly, I don't understand why we don't all agree to have a process to sort out where people belong. Some people are going to be unhappy, but mostly we ought to be capable of making decisions that make sense. Well, I think you've, you've I mean, there's loads of interesting issues arising from that. Um, certainly, I, I, I agree, it should be a simple legal question left up to the court, left up to the em- emotionless courts, rather than the um, sort of knee-jerk politicians i guess is how as lawyers would like would like to think of it that you would you would have a process and it wouldn't rely on you being the person being popular to the general public to you know whether that whether or not they are granted the rights that everybody else the rights to have rights as Arendt says um but the reality is that sometimes it's not like that and and i think that that actually brings me on to a different topic that I wanted to talk about, which is the whole life orders, which may sound like a, a, a funny segue, but I, it doesn't that say, isn't it the same dynamic that once you start um, in cases that are abhorrent to the to well, they're ab- objectively abhorrent and abhorrent to the public and they create a public, you know, outcry. Once you start saying, well, now you're going to have the highest possible punishment that we've just created, you know, that's bigger than any other punishment that's exceptional, that once you create the exception, it becomes harder and harder to avoid the exception in other... Sorry, I'll put it another way. It becomes harder to explain coherently why that exception applies to one horrific case, um, but doesn't apply to a different kind of horrific case and all of a sudden it's applying to lots and lots of cases and it's not an exception anymore and and that brings that's my very long segue into the article you wrote yesterday in the times about um wayne cousins the 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 murderer of sarah everard and the whole life sentence that was given to him um and can you just talk a bit about your the point you were making there well look um first of all it's it's the difference between power and principles you know, it's really mostly about male power, isn't it? The the fact that you could actually create a system that decides where everybody belongs is just an exercise in, in willpower to be principled and not just exercise arbitrary power. I suppose if you wanted to appeal to the political um, ego, you would say, wouldn't you want to be a baron that everybody trusts? 
and that you are prepared to take on your bad people as well as your good people. But I'm not a politician, but that seems to me how you could appeal to a powerful ego. Um, And whole life sentences is really much the same thing. You know, it's an exercise in male power, whether it's a judge sentencing or um, a political group creating those sentences as an exercise in retribution. It, it's not a principled way of dealing with things. It, that's not to suggest that dangerous people should be wandering the streets, and but to think about how do we make women safe walking home? And as a woman lawyer, you know, as I said in the article, you you really think about three things. First, your first reaction to the sentencing of him, and I don't choose to name him, is that, whether that whole life sentence was correct. And it's just really interesting that the judge chose to equate his sense of power as a police officer to effect an unlawful arrest in order to rape and kill her with an extreme ideology. And one argument is, of course, the failure to treat women as equals, to treat women as sexual objects, is of itself extreme. So one way of looking at that exercise of power in sentencing is that there was there was something in there that wasn't explained terribly well in the sentencing remarks about extreme ideology, which is the criteria for the whole life sentence. So that was really interesting. And the first thing you're going to think about as a lawyer is, is that a lawful sentence? Can you equate it to an extreme ideology? The next thing you're going to think about is all those cases that still come before the courts or don't come before the courts where women are harmed the global problem with violence against women and girls, locking people up on life sentences, as I, again, as I said in the article, doesn't work any more than the death penalty or the ducking stool. All the available research says, well, you might have to have treatment with restrictions for the most dangerous, but pretty much everybody else needs rehabilitation or or help and so many people in prison are vulnerable with mental health problems traumatic brain injury disability uh, victims of abuse victims of human trafficking victims of domestic violence so many people in prison have maybe acted out because they suffer a range of vulnerabilities that sentences that come with retribution really have no value. What we really want is for men not to offend against women at all. And that's much more about education and treating women as equals. And the last thing you come to as a woman lawyer is you can think about all those times that you yourself have not been safe. And you have to sort of bury that to make sure that you're a lawyer first. But we operate in a world where women are not safe Um, I operate in a profession where women are in the minority. The last six murder trials I did, there were 49 professionals, judges and barristers, and only three were women. That unless you speak out about these things and say we've got to do things differently, that um, education, rehabilitation, treatment, again, with restrictions for dangerous people and changing the the way that we operate into a much more principled rather than principled exercise that is not prejudiced, that is not biased, that is not pandering to the the press. Unless you think about those 
that jurisprudence, those philosophical underpinnings of what a justice system really means, ultimately, at the end of the day, the people who suffer are, in the end, mostly women and children because we're um, victims of continual exercise of male power and kept out of the senior decision-making. So, look, um, I don't want Sarah... Sarah Everard's legacy simply to be another year whereby women recognise that we are unsafe, whether it's walking home or our well-being affected in our employment because of the way that people behave. I would love her legacy to be, let's find a way to make sure that women are uh, equal and not objectified. Um, And... I hope that that is her legacy long term. I um, felt quite strongly about it. And I'm very pleased that the Times published my view. But yeah, look, whole life sentencing, it doesn't seem to me, fix that problem. And where all the research says that it's a dysfunctional sentence, then it's not going to... um, fuel a change. It's, It's just another exercise in power that doesn't really work very well I'm, I'm really interested in that um the point about the comparison with terrorism and ideological um an ideological murder as as it were um and i was just when i was reading the the sentencing remarks um you know the the whole life order in fact i read i read the whole life order i, I reread it because i've read it in the context of the human rights challenges to whole life orders and i think i've i think i've dealt with the whole life order case um i can't remember what happened with it but it but i've 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 come across it before and and the whole life order law um has been to strasbourg it's been in the end it was approved um kind of as a fudge really the the the, the european court i think was was afraid of the uk (laughs) pulling out of the convention and did a bit of a fudge um but so it's sort of it is human rights compliant, but it is also you know like real life imprisonment with no prospect of rehabilitation. It takes away the possibility of rehabilitation because by definition there's no way out. As in that if if the point if the reward for rehabilitation is you get to regain your liberty and your place in society, then you can re- rehabilitate all you want. You'll never regain your liberty or your place in society. And the justification for that is that the, the offences are so serious and unusual that they fall into a special category. But here, the judge had to look at the examples and say, well, is this example similar to any of the examples that are in the list of examples in, in the law? So, for example, there is the murder of two or more persons, so a serial killer, um, the abduction of a victim, sexual or sadistic conduct, uh, the murder of a child involving the abduction of the child, the murder of a police officer or a prison officer, um, or um, the murder done for the purpose of advancing a political, religious, racial or ideological cause, which is obviously terrorism. But the one that jumped out at me, actually, that nobody, that the judge didn't mention was the murder of a police officer. And and, and I was, I thought, I had a, th- I thought, well, maybe he will see an analogy there that the murder of a police officer, why is the murder of a police officer so bad? Because it strikes at the heart of our structure of authority and protection in society. Um, it's the thing people most fear is that the, is that the very 
people who are protecting them will disappear because they're they're being killed. But why? But why is is that an is that analogous? If you talk about power, you know, is is that analogous in a way to a police officer using their authority to murder? Um, but maybe that's too neat. No, as an exercise in jurisprudence, there's an imbalance in the system, isn't there? If you remove a police officer who is an organ of the state, you face a draconian penalty. But if the organ of the state removes you, they <laughs> as a member of that society they don't there's an imbalance there that we could discuss jurisprudentially every day of the week it's much like the trolley problem you know whose fault is it if the trolley's running away and there's people on the line you know who where does responsibility for those deaths lie is it with the train driver is it with the person pulling the trolley handle and so on we we have these philosophical debates all the time to understand how our criminal justice systems work but I think there's, there's and, and so I do think the judge was, his reasoning was really interesting. And I think it's why I'm disappointed that he didn't go into it in more detail, because I think there is some reasoning around both of those things. The, the idea that a woman walking home is someone who could be abducted, raped and killed because he can, is arguably extreme. The idea that a killing of a police officer is somehow more important than the killing of somebody else is arguably an imbalance in the system. So I think as lawyers, we always have to think about, well, how is the law working? We've also got this additional problem that judges have to interpret the laws having regard to what Parliament set the criteria to be. Um, was it possible to work up to a whole life sentence by simply saying, well, this behaviour aggravates it to a whole life sentence rather than fitting into one of the criteria? Those are the sorts of things we discuss as lawyers every single day of the week. Against all of that background is all the research that actually, that, that you're not going to reduce violence against women and girls by choosing to lock up individuals for the whole of their lives. And one individual case doesn't create a balance in the system as a whole. And that's, that's very hard to buy because you, the, the, your natural instinctive feelings of retribution in such a terrible case when the family have lost a daughter have to be seen in the wider um, systemic vision that we have to have about a criminal justice system and if you have decisions that are made on a case-by-case basis which unfortunately the English courts have been doing for about the last 20-30 years well we'll just decide this on a case-by-case basis everything is fact specific it's a case-by-case decision you lose sight of legal principle and the two cases that we've talked about today have been an exercise, Jogi and Begum have been an exercise in looking back through legal history and saying, well, how does the system work? And then sometimes it has to work in ways that we don't like morally for an individual case, but systemically we have to accept because that's a functioning just system that has dignity and respect. And we could respect Sarah Everard while still saying actually a whole life sentence is not a sentence that has any real principle or dis, um, or any real principle or function it doesn't do anything that is successful in preventing crime reducing crime protecting women 
or even punishing that person. Whereas a, a sentence that can be defined, perhaps coming with life license and decisions about risk down the line, has much more principle to it. That's not to say there's an automatic end date to that prison sentence, but we have a system whereby there are parole decisions, there are assessments of risk down the line. And human behaviour is always about an assessment of risk, and that seems to be much more principled and much more balanced and it's a system that has integrity and has factors and principles that we can see and apply that make the law clear to the public and if the public can understand how the law works and why it's set up in a particular way then there's going to be a great deal more engagement it seems to me and there's ample research that's not really me pontificating there's ample research to say that you know a a functioning criminal justice system really only has any integrity if people trust it. And this case-by-case case decision-making, this one's terrible, we'll do this, that one's not so terrible, we'll do that. The categories of sentencing that we have from the Sentencing Council, this one fits into this box, this one fits into that box, doesn't have any wider jurisprudence to it. It really is not thinking about a functional system that has integrity and when you've got judges dishing out sentencing remarks without a, a, a if you like a treatise or an exercise in where's the law coming from where are the footnotes the citations the previous cases the justification for that decision then it becomes valueless and that I don't want to be her legacy you know and a judgment that explains why you're not giving a whole life sentence and the expectation is that the system works in a particular way, it seems to me would have much more value. Yeah, well, I mean, there aren't any cases mentioned in the um, sentencing remarks, are there? Um, I, I hadn't really thought about that, but there are. But I, I guess I hadn't thought about it because I'm used to not seeing them because they come out. And know, I'm not. In Australia, yeah. you would get um, a, a full treatise on what the law is that's been applied yeah. and I think that's a real failure in England and Wales at the moment is that judgments are not issued applying the law I think that's where a lot of mistakes are made hers yeah. isn't perhaps the right case to have that conversation but I think it's the reason why the decision is not as well understood as it could be and, yeah. and I think it's really unfortunate that we've developed this tradition of of not actually giving judgment we give extempore off-the-cuff decisions um without considering the wider legal principles and it, it, it I think it is causing huge dysfunction in criminal cases and the sooner we move away from the case-by-case case approach the factual matrix approach and get back to basic criminal law jurisprudence put that so that I don't have to put my professor hat on separately from my barrister's wig uh, the better in my opinion I think it's um it's probably born of people being very busy, but it's causing serious problems in the way in which both the law works and how it's understood. What You've done a lot of work on um, sexual violence against women and violence against women generally. And I guess one of the issues which is always, is always at the fore, or at least in the background, um, whenever this issue comes up, is rape, rape convictions. Um, and we've, I've dealt with it on the podcast a few times. Um, but what, I mean, what what can be done do you think what are the if we look at the lessons of Sarah Everard's case but you know maybe it's not her case maybe just generally what could be done 
um, if we're not going to be just in, increasing sentences and, and punishing offenders when it's too, in a way it's too late, what can be done to stop these events happening? Yeah, I think, look, there's a serious problem with people wanting to go to the police at all. A really serious problem about having complaints dealt with by a state agency. And the idea that you've got to talk about the most personal issue in your life in a courtroom full of people that you don't know is extraordinarily difficult for the victim of violence and sexual violence. It's hard enough to tell a police officer. And when you have a quite militarised police force now, you know, we see the police on the streets tackling protest or... Uh, we see police um, press conferences and you've got quite militarised approaches, you know, these very aggressive policing. Um, it's They're not the people you're going to go and want to talk to about something terrible that's happened to you. Um, so I think there's a real problem in the way in which we set up mechanisms for people to complain. We obviously still live in a world where people um, are not believed. Uh, so that's, truly problematic that the natural reaction is to question whether that person is telling the truth which we which would never happen if it was a burglary someone says i've been burgled you say oh that's terrible or if someone says well um she was raped you often get the reaction well how do you know if that's true it's just his word against hers so there's a societal problem with the attitude towards cases involving sexual offending um, and I think there is a systemic problem. Just the courtroom, the buildings, the way in which we ask questions. I've written quite a lot about trauma-informed courts. Again, it's about court integrity. But the unless we have courts that understand trauma, even for the lawyers in court, never mind the witnesses, that, that people in the dock might have their own trauma. I think probably the way we deal with the adversarial system as a whole is unscientific, mostly based on which bloke can give the best speech, getting witnesses in and out as quickly as possible to be efficient, whereas traumatic cases really need to take a long time and people need the opportunity to tell their story slowly. Um, just thinking differently about how we do things. I mean, one of the examples I give, and this is just an example, it's not the answer, it's dealt with cases involving sexual offending in a criminal court, and then I've dealt with the same case in the medical professional tribunal because the person accused is a doctor, you deal with the criminal allegations, and then you deal with the disciplinary proceeding on those same allegations because there's an issue around whether that person can still be a doctor. And so you get to go to this quite nice informal place in Manchester where everybody sits at the same level and has a much more relaxed conversation about what happened that day. And it seems to me that that's quite an interesting way to deal with cases involving sexual offending. There are certainly quite a lot of moves now to having drug courts or um, customary courts, courts that take into account Indigenous people in the system. Um, health and law is now on the rise and understanding that you might need courts that deal with people with mental health issues. Um, so courts that are that 
truly understand the need that time might need to be taken to assess in a comfortable and non-traumatic way what, what the outcome is, seems to me is something that needs to be seriously considered. And there might the understanding that there can be trauma on both sides as well is a really difficult thing to think about, that um, someone who commits a rape might of themselves also have some serious problems that the system doesn't currently solve. And again, women's safety is likely to be improved if we can solve those problems. So I think at the moment we maintain an adversarial system that doesn't really work very well for traumatic events. And there's something to be said about a, uh, a system that searches for truth in a calmer way with tr understanding of trauma at the forefront of its mind rather than the understanding of punishment at the forefront of its mind. And that, I think, would get the public to engage better in a system that looks more like it could work for traumatic events and I think there's some discussion around this in the international criminal courts where you have to deal with sexual violence in conflict zones and appalling, terrible, appalling abuses that happen to women in conflict zones, that there is this understanding that actually we need to take time to understand these behaviours that are mostly exercises in male power to work out how the system should work to not just deal with those individual offenders, but to make sure that there is a move to it reducing and eventually being eliminated in an, in an ideal world. So, you know, there's a lot to be done to reduce violence, whether it's people fighting outside pubs or going home and beating up their wives or raping women in the street. And making the system adversarial isn't necessarily the right answer. So what can be done? There's a long list that a lot of researchers have written down for a very, very long time. And we've done, we've made some improvements, things are better than they were. But I think we've still got a long way to go before we put trauma at the front before punishment. Those are, I mean, crikey, those are really tough. It's a tough conceptual journey you have to go on to get moved from a world where we see criminals as monsters um to a world where we see you know we see humans versus humans in a way um but really also really hard and the thing that i i often talk about with you know the point of human rights part of the point of human rights for me as well as articulating that people are you know have should be given dignity should be allowed to flourish etc it's just giving a allowing for a sort of cool compassionate head in a very, very passionate, difficult situation, you know, and, and, and putting, I mean, that's the point of law, isn't it? It's having rules which allow us to, I, I can't remember the, the expression you used earlier, something like it's um, the uh, being sort of strong enough to not act instinct, instinctively, to act uh, compassionately. The... But, you know, how you do that in the case, you know, we, Sarah, we go back to Sarah Everard, you know, the, the need for a sort of public reckoning when something so, so horrific has happened is overwhelming. It's really, you know, how, how can you, how can the justice system operate in a way that you're talking about of, of, you know, seeing the humanity even in 
people who have done terrible things in a in a you know in in situations where the where the public you know would not tolerate it yeah but i you know i have a great belief in the public that there yeah. is a real understanding you know i definitely think people do think about you know how does this work you know how do we choose this sentence for this person basically what people want is for that never to happen to sarah that's what people want. They don't want that to happen. They want their daughters to be able to walk home safely. So it, that's the problem, not the sentencing exercise. That's the problem. It would be a lovely world, of course, if we never had to have any lawyers, if people didn't fall out and fight over everything. You know, we all ought to be out of a job if we, if we, in, in a utopian world because no one would ever dispute anything. We'd all mediate an outcome. Nobody would ever be harmed. We're not... That doesn't happen. Human nature is explosive um and i suppose the 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 way i like to describe it and it's been done by others but there's this fantastic fictional case called the spelunkian explorers and it's a bit old-fashioned in 1950s but it and you can google it it's a um again it's an exercise in jurisprudence but it's a fictional case set in the year 3000 and something spelunking is cave dwelling uh, cave dwelling cave exploring and the spelunkers get stuck in a cave and they ask for advice um, and they're going to die. And they say, well, well if, if we eat one of us, will we live? And the advice come back, comes back, well, yes. So they kill somebody, they eat that person and they live. And when they come out, they're put on trial for murder. When they're better, because they've been affected by being stuck in a cave. And the law in this fictional country is whether it's... Uh, willful murder and the fictional jury say well if this is murder then they're guilty because they willfully did it but we don't know if it's murder so it goes on appeal to this fictional court of appeal that says well we've got to decide is this murder and one and so it tries to set out the different um, legal theories so the positivist says oh well, it says it's willful, so it is. So it's willful, so it's murder, and they're guilty. And then the natural lawyer says, well, they're so far out of the jurisdiction, they're in such a situation of extremeness, the law can't possibly apply to people in this terrible situation where they're stuck in a cave, they're not guilty. Then another judge says, well, I'm going to go on public opinion. There's In the newspaper, it says 90% want this and 10% want that, so I'll just go with public opinion. And then another judge says, well, this is too hard. I'm going to go home. And it's just one of those situations that allows you to think about, well, what is murder? What is killing? What is it when people are in extreme situations? How do we make decisions about criminal responsibility? How do we think about how the law works? And, you know, you, there is some much greater philosophical treaties that we can read um, and you can get bogged down in your Kants and your Foucault's and all the rest of it. But that one, it works for me because it, it you just get to see how arbitrary it is to say, well, we'll just go with public opinion. Because in the next case, the public opinion might be the complete reverse. So I, I just think I have great faith in, in the public that thought through, they would understand that you, you have to have a a process and a system and it has to be relatively clinical but not aggressive and not an adversarial doesn't necessarily work it is meant to be law and not war and 
if we can solve things by law, which is the fundamental tenet of the post-Second World War principles, that we solve problems with law and not war, then we shouldn't be warring in the courtroom. That, that philosophy around solving it through process might be a lot duller, but it make, should make people a lot safer. And that, it seems to me, is what we mean by dignity and respect, that we move towards a society where people are not harmed. Uh, yeah. And there is a long, long, long way to go, particularly for women and girls. Well, I, I was going to ask you, I was going to say something sexist, actually. Do you think the, what's, what the real problem here is that there's too many men in the justice system and we would could do with a bit more, um, you know, a bit more equality and, you know, compassion and, you know, a better approach? And more, I mean, maybe the two things are connected. The, the fact that you say that there's, you know, it's such a male dominated world still in the higher echelons of the justice system. Yeah, look, 80%, 90% of people in prison are men. Women are rarely criminals. That gives you an insight into the different ways in which people behave. Vast majority of jurists, lawyers and judges are men. So um, it, it doesn't represent the society who are being represented or judged. And that is a serious problem. I wrote a chapter for a book on feminist engagement in international law and there's quite a lot of research on the visibility of women it just changes things to have people visible and that equally applies to people of color that it changes the way we do things if um there is a representative body working towards better solutions i know it's quite again it's trite to say well diverse people come up with better outcomes but it's a shorthand version of saying look we've we've spent generations breeding men to go and fight wars there may be something genetic in that I'm not a scientist but there comes a point when you have to say well look there are there's more to um life than just um making people ready to fight so if, there's a, if there are generations of people who were not bred to fight, namely women, then maybe that's the solution. Maybe the women are the solution to creating a better justice system. I, I hesitate to say a better world. It's outside of my area of expertise. But I think that's what Eleanor Roosevelt was getting at when she tried to negotiate the, um, the principles that are the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So... I think a better world involves us all in equal measure. And uh, I can be ever hopeful for that. But in the meantime, the contribution that I can make is for everybody to think a bit more deeply and hardly about how our criminal justice systems work, whether that's international, transnational, corporate or domestic. Um, there's a lot of thinking to be done. And I think we sometimes in the legal system in England and Wales have sort of forgotten how to do that and that's what I'm, I perhaps see my role is to stick my hand up and remind everybody about five or eight hundred years of law well I, I can say on behalf of the whole justice system being maybe as maybe as a, as a white male I get to uh, I, I have that privileged and I shouldn't have but we're we you know the justice system is better for having you in it Felicity and um, 
if if there were lots more then you know we, we that would be um it would be a better system um I, I i could talk to you all day but i'm not going to take up more of your time and i really appreciate you taking the time to talk some of these issues through where can people find out more about the work that you're doing well i suppose i my media stuff is on my own website which is felicitygary.com and my barrister stuff is on my chambers websites which is libertas chambers in london and crockett chambers in melbourne but uh it's probably listed at the victorian bar website and then my um academic staff is at Deakin University in Australia and Salford University in the UK so I suppose I'm that makes me five or six jobs but uh, certainly sticking my oar in in five or six places but that's where my information is from the work that I do for the media as an academic and as a barrister. Thanks so much Felicity. So thanks so much to Felicity, Gary QC for a really interesting conversation and hopefully one which you have enjoyed as much as I enjoyed recording it. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. If you're interested in studying law and taking your first step towards becoming a solicitor or barrister with a qualifying law degree, you can learn more and apply by visiting gold.act.uk forward slash law. Thanks so much. This has been the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner. If you want to support the podcast, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. See you next time. Bye bye.